Welcome, 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 welcome everybody to the Neurological Deep Dive. I am your host, Ferret Fawns. And today I have with me, just finding out, author of the Gospel Justification, Gospel Dawn. Gospel Dawn, what do you have for us today? Today's topic is going to be legal versus gospel justification. Wow, now that is a full mouthful. Now, I think we're going to be intrigued like we are with every other show. So sit back, put your seatbelts on and relax, and just enjoy what Gospel's Gone has to say for us. Okay, in the last days, the Bible says that it's going to be characterized in this way. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then the next chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, it says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Now, if you know anything about fishing, you know that all fishermen, they know that it is easier to tangle up a fishing line than to untangle it. It is also easier to learn something new than to unlearn something we've already had drilled into us. There are many gospel notions being promulgated today. Because of this, a lot of people are either unsettled and confused in their thinking, or steadfast and dogmatic in their false notions. Many have a, what you call, a spring trap mind that has already sprung. Hopefully, you're not one of them. I urge you to consider what I say with an open mind, an open Bible, a prayerful heart, and a determination to conform to the truth in your thinking and in your actions. This is a heavy topic. It's called gospel justification, or this particular talk is legal versus gospel justification. Now, Jesus in Luke 11, chapter 11, verse 35, says he warns us and he warns his listeners of the many deceivers to come in the last days. And he says this, quote, Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. So many are holding fast to darkness because they are convinced it is light. This need never happen. God gave us all a conscience to judge between right and wrong, a mind to realize, or should I say to analyze, and to reason and to think. And, um, and he also gave us time and he gave us resources to serve him with. And he gave us a Bible to depend upon as our final authority. Therefore, there is no excuse for any of us to be in the dark concerning the gospel message. It is my hope that you, dear listener, will use all the faculties, strength, and resources you have at your disposal to come to a true and clear understanding of the gospel of Christ. After all, can you name a branch of science that is more important than theology? The word theology means the science of God. Can you think of a greater benefit 
in this world than to be delivered from sin and sin's misery? Does material wealth, career success, financial security, high social standing, outward beauty, fame, marital bliss, earthly pleasure, or even physical health, can any of these things come close to the value of being right with God and on the way to heaven? Can anything compare with the benefit of being in God's favor and having true and lasting happiness? The Bible declares that the greatest of all blessings flowing from the hand of God to mankind is the salvation of the soul. This salvation is made known and offered to us in the gospel of Christ. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is only in the true gospel of Christ that we find God's power to save from sin and from its consequences. Name any problem you may have or any problem in this world, whether it be familial, interpersonal, physical, psychological, political, spiritual, and you will find that sin is at the root of it. Sin, which means the voluntary and conscious transgression of the law of God, is the number one problem in this world. What then is the solution for this number one problem? The solution for sin is found in the person, mercy, and message of Jesus Christ, the one whose mission in coming to earth was to take away our sins, quote-unquote. That's right out of 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. That was Christ's mission. He came to take away our sins in the sense that he came to forgive us of all past sins and to give us direction and strength of will to avoid future sins. The only solution and cure for sin is to turn from sin to Christ, the Son of God, and to believe his gospel. What is this gospel of Christ? The gospel of Christ is simply the good message or the good word of Christ, which consists chiefly in the truth that God sent his Son into the world to die for all sinners so that all might be saved who repent and believe on him. I'm reading now in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. It says, Now after that John was put in prison, speaking of John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. That's what Jesus Christ came to do. He came to save sinners. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, we read, This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. The Apostle Paul said that. Now, when he said, I am chief of sinners, he was referring to his past life before he became a Christian, because when he became a Christian, he was no longer a sinner in the sense that he was now a disciple of Christ. The act of saving is called salvation. The term salvation, as used most often in the New Testament, means 
and I quote from Noah Webster, it means this, the redemption of man from the bondage of sin and liability to eternal death and conferring on him everlasting happiness. That's the definition of salvation, according to Noah Webster, who wrote that in 1828. This salvation, or deliverance, you could call it, or redemption, is the most valuable blessing or possession anyone can have. The salvation offered in the gospel of Christ consists mainly in four things, or four benefits, or you could say four aspects. One aspect is this, justification in the gospel sense. That means forgiveness of sins. Number two, uh, another benefit or an aspect of salvation is regeneration. That means being born again or being renewed in heart. The third aspect is adoption. That's the act of God by which he takes persons into his favor and they become his spiritual children. That's adoption. That's one of the benefits and aspects of salvation. And number four is sanctification. That means the act of making holy or purifying from sin. It means the act of being set apart and devoted to God. That's sanctification. All of these four aspects of salvation have to do with being delivered from sin's penalty, sin's pollution, and sin's grip. When a person acknowledges his guilt as a sinner, receives Christ as his supreme sovereign, supreme Lord, believes that Christ suffered and died for him, and begins to purposely and intently follow God's will at all costs, that person who meets all of these conditions will receive at that moment the free gift of salvation or all these four benefits that I just mentioned. He is at that moment of conversion, justified in the gospel sense. He is regenerated or born of God. He is adopted into God's fam family, and he is sanctified. That is, he's made holy, or he's devoted to God. The word devoted also implies uh, consecration to God. Now, here is an interesting verse, and it's in Luke chapter 2, and verse 52. And it's speaking of Christ. This is when he was about 12 years old. And uh, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, Jesus was sinless. He was morally perfect. He had never sinned. And he was living, he was what you would call sanctified because he was consecrated to God. But it says in this verse that he increased in wisdom and in stature. And stature means physically he got bigger. And it also says he increased in favor with God and man. Well, if you're morally perfect, is it possible to increase in wisdom? I say, yes, it is. Because the way we increase in wisdom is to increase in knowledge. And also he increased in favor with God and man. Well, uh, the reason this can happen is, is by learning more of God's will. So Jesus grew in wisdom and in favor with God. And there's another verse that says the same thing. 
in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So it's possible to be morally perfect right now, even as Jesus was, and yet to still increase or to still grow. Because um, it is because uh, the way we grow in favor is to grow in knowledge and to grow in wisdom. The more we grow in wisdom, the more we will grow in favor. But that doesn't mean you're in sin at that point. So I just thought that was interesting how Christ was sanctified and yet he still had to increase in knowledge, which means if we are sanctified, and we could be at this time entirely sanctified. And if that's the case, that doesn't mean we don't need to increase. We still do need to increase in knowledge and in wisdom. So these four benefits I've been talking about, these are gifts that flow from the hand of God. But these precious gifts can only become ours if we meet the terms made known to us in the Bible. In other words, these gifts will be ours if we put forth human effort, if we cooperate with God's goodness and God's words. So that's what we must do. So there is a part we have to play if you want to be justified, regenerated, adopted, and sanctified. So the purpose of this deep dive or this study is to consider in some depth the particular aspect of salvation known as gospel justification, otherwise known as justification by faith. The Bible clearly teaches in justification by faith. And so I want to now look at that word justify. And we're only going to look at three aspects of this word justify. And it's used in three different ways in the Bible. And uh, so I've entitled this legal versus gospel justification. Let me just say it this way. Let me define real quickly what legal justification is. That is, legal justification is being accepted by God on the basis of good works, on the basis of having kept the law perfectly. That's legal justification. It's being accepted as just due to a perfect conformity to law without exception. That's legal justification. It means being accepted on the basis of perfect, uninterrupted obedience to law. That's legal justification. Now, gospel justification means being accepted as just or treated as one who has yielded perfect obedience to the moral law, but really didn't. He has sinned, but now he can be accepted or treated as, as though he had never sinned. In other words, gospel justification simply means being pardoned. It means being accepted by God on the basis of faith. Faith in God, faith in Christ. It means being accepted by God on the basis of his grace or on the basis of his shed blood. The Bible does speak of justification by grace and justification by his blood. And so those are the two, in a nutshell, the two differences. But let me look at the word now, uh, justify, as it is used in the Bible. So to justify means, or sometimes means, to declare or pronounce one to be just or righteous. It means to declare one to be what he really is. 
This is legal justification now. This is not gospel justification. It means, legal justification means to declare someone guiltless or innocent. Or it means to prove or show to be just. That's what it means to justify. Now, will God justify a sinner in this way? Well, let me quote Exodus chapter 23, verse 7. It says, For I will not justify the wicked. When he said this, he meant he will not declare the wicked to be innocent, blameless, or righteous. God will not justify the wicked in a legal sense, that is. God cannot and will not pronounce a wicked man to be just in a legal or in a judicial sense. If God were to justify in the, in the legal sense any man who has a record of being wicked, then he would be rightly deemed unjust. Since God is perfectly just and righteous, we can rest assured that he will not declare to be righteous in a judicial sense now a single person who has been or is presently unrighteous in his doings. The New Testament establishes this truth that God will not justify the wicked in any legal sense. And I'm turning right now to Galatians in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, it says this, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh, that means no person, be justified. So here you can see that there's two ways to be justified. One of them is by law, and the other one is by faith. Well, it says here, no man can be justified by the works of the law. Do you know why? It's because we've all broken the law. We've already blown it, all of us. So we need another way to be justified. On the basis of law, we all fail because the Bible says all have sinned. Now, there's another verse in Romans chapter 3, it says the same thing, same basic thing in Romans chapter 3. And verse 20, I believe, yeah. Chapter 3, 20, it says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And he said that right after he said, There's none righteous, no, not one. And he says, uh, there, uh, there's none that understandeth, there's none that seeketh after God, they're all gone out of the way, they're together become unprofitable. In other words, he's saying that all mankind have sinned. Now, he's not really saying there's no such thing as a sinless person, okay? Sinless in the sense that he's presently right with God, he's presently living a holy life. You cannot be holy and unholy at the same time. So there are people in this world who are holy. Those would be saints. Those would be Christians or disciples of Christ, so long as they follow, of course. So right here, so that verse says there, therefore by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Why? We've all broken the law. Because right after that, it says, for all have sinned. To sin means to violate the law, to break the law. That's the definition of sin. So we've all sinned. So we all need a better way, or should I say another way, to be justified before God. To be justified by the works of the law means to be justified in a legal sense. No person 
shall be justified or accepted by God by way of law works. The reason this is so is because no person has lived a while in his morally accountable state. It, uh, let me, I'm reading something here. The reason this is so is because no person who has lived a while in his morally accountable state has, in God's sight, a faultless and uninterrupted record of perfect adherence to the moral law. Good works of law-keeping, though very useful and beneficial before and after conversion, cannot compensate for or cancel out past violations of law. In other words, they cannot atone for our sins. Good works cannot atone for our past sins. Faith in Christ, and not merely a commitment to start keeping the law, is the true way to get acceptance with God after one has sinned. The New Testament says this, quote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's in Romans 1.18. See, if we've done wrong, then God's wrath is hovering over us. Also, in Revelation 21.8, we read, But the fearful and unbelieving and, and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. To be under God's wrath, or to be in a state of condemnation, is the opposite of being justified. It's the opposite of being declared righteous or being vindicated as right. Any past sinner who stands before God in his court of law on judgment day, having received no pardon prior to that day of judgment, will be condemned to everlasting punishment because God will not justify the wicked in his court of law. God always declares a man to be what he really is at the moment. If you are sinning right now, then God sees you as a sinner right now. He is angry with you right now, and you are not presently justified in his sight. All who now live as sinners are now seen by God as sinners, and all who die as sinners will be judged as sinners and condemned. When acting as a judge on the great day of judgment, God will always impute guilt to the guilty and innocence to the innocent. This is the essence of good and righteous judgment. It is because God judges righteously and will not justify the wicked or pronounce the wicked to be just that the whole unrepentant world is in deep trouble with God right now. That's why it says that every mouth may be stopped. It says that in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. It says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. So on the basis of law, God's law, we all fall short. We have all come short of the glory of God. Jesus Christ himself was justified in the Spirit. In what sense? Well, this means he was legally justified. By the miracles of Christ and the apostles, which were performed through the energy of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was declared or affirmed to be God manifest in the flesh. Jesus was justified in the Spirit. It says that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And he was justified in the Spirit in the sense that he was declared to be what he really was. 
Jesus was also justified in the Spirit in the sense that he was declared to be just or righteous by the Spirit's raising him from the dead. And you can read about that in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. In this sense, Jesus was declared by the Holy Spirit to be always and entirely righteous in his character. He was justified in the Spirit in the sense that he was absolutely free from sin and never needed gospel justification. In other words, he never needed to be forgiven. We do, but he never needed it because he was justified in a legal sense. He never sinned, never violated God's law, not for one minute. That's amazing. That is really amazing to live about 33, 34 years and never once commit a sin against God. That, to me, is the greatest hero of the universe. No person on earth deserves more homage, more glory, more honor, and more reverence than the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus was accepted in the eye of God's government. On what basis? On a legal basis. His entire life, as it was lived in heaven and on earth, could stand under the scrutiny of perfect justice. In summary, Jesus was justified, that is, declared righteous, in the Spirit. Jesus was called the just one in Acts chapter 7, verse 52. This means he never once violated the moral law. He never sinned. Jesus was not justified in a gospel sense because he never obtained nor needed to obtain forgiveness for past sin. He never needed to be pardoned because he was not, because he was justified in a literal and legal sense. He was always and altogether righteous. Since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, no human moral agent other than Jesus and innocent children has ever been justified in God's sight in a legal or judicial sense. This is because all have sinned. There is none righteous, no, not one. There are none, none that are morally accountable, that have a past record of being always and altogether righteous except for Jesus Christ and except for youngsters who have not yet sinned in the scriptural and actual sense. There is none righteous, no, not one. Now, when it says there's none righteous, no, not one, it doesn't mean there's none. It doesn't mean there's none on earth who are right with God because obviously the Bible everywhere speaks of the righteous and the unrighteous, the just and the unjust, the saint and the sinner. So yeah, there are saints on earth. There are the righteous. So when it says here, there are none righteous, he has to mean, well, first of all, Paul is quoting Psalm 14, when that was just the general the general way of the people back then, because he was quoting, David, I believe, was quoting uh, in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, I believe, also. He was just uh, depicting the general condition, moral condition of the people at that time. So a lot of times God and the scriptures uses universal terms to apply to things that are not universal uh, without going into depth. I guess I, I just want to say this. When it says there's none righteous, it means there's none who are in a morally accountable state who have a perfect, uninterrupted uh, record of being totally righteous. But Jesus has that record. I mentioned 
about children being innocent. Well, I just want to give a little note here. Since Jesus says that infants are little children and that little children make up the kingdom of God, and since John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb, and since one must first be able to know or understand to do good before he can actually sin, it is reasonable to assume two things. That infants are born innocent with no sin in their hearts and that sin is a phenomenon of the will and not genetically inherited. The Bible in quite a few places says that they corrupted themselves. We're not born corrupt. We corrupt ourselves. That's how it happens. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It doesn't say all have sinned and born short of the glory. We're not born short of the glory of God. We have come short of the glory of God. And then it says all have sinned. Well, you you can't sin unless you know the law. And an infant does not even know the law. So he cannot sin. He's not responsible for his actions as an infant. So that was just a little side note, just to show that this is a very important doctrine to believe that we're born innocent. Because see, if you think sin is in your body and sin, you were born with sin, then what's the solution? You're going to think the solution is, well, the only solution is die. Get out of your body because your body is sinful. Well, no, your body is not sinful. The problem is not your body. The problem is in the heart. And the only one that can cure sin, it's not physical death. That doesn't, that's not our Savior. There's only one Savior, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So you want sin to be taken away? The solution is not to kill yourself or not, not to die. That's not going to take away your sin. It's going to, the solution is to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. So no accountable person who has lived in a state of responsible personhood for any significant length of time other than Jesus, can honestly claim to have had a life of perfect, universal, and uninterrupted conformity to moral law. Young people, before they actually sin, are innocent and justified in a legal sense. Adam and Eve, before they sinned, they were innocent and justified in a legal sense. They lost their justified state when they took of the forbidden fruit. But before they did that, they were justified in a legal sense. They were innocent, but only the Lord Jesus Christ was innocent and legally justified throughout his entire moral career. Legal justification means being found not guilty because of a perfect record of entire conformity to law. No living person who has lived a while as a morally accountable person may ever hope to be justified in a legal sense, in the sense in which Jesus was justified. Why? as I said, all have sinned. Sinners then must find another way to get acceptance with God. So I just talked about one aspect of being justified. And this is legal justification. This is not gospel justification. Now, another aspect of the meaning of the word to justify, or another meaning of this word justify, it's very, very similar. So let me define it here. To justify sometimes means to prove or show to be just or conformable to law. In other words, it means to vindicate as right. This meaning of the word justify is much like the other one that I just talked about, except here, particular actions are in view and not the whole span of one's life. So this too 
is legal justification. This is, you could call it judicial justification, or a lot have called it forensic justification. Now, that word forensic means belonging to or used in courts of law or courts of justice. That's forensic justification. So many have been justified in court trials in regard to specific accusations or indictments. But in regard to one's entire life, no one can be legally justified in God's court because all have broken his laws. No one will ever be justified as Jesus was justified in the Spirit because no one can rightly claim he has been totally and at all times blameless during his entire moral career. As I already said, I'm repeating myself here a bit. Forgive me for doing that. But I, I, I want to get these thoughts really uh, firmly settled in our minds. So in Ro- uh, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15, the word justify means to show to be just, or it means to prove to be conformable to law. It means to vindicate as right. Let me quote it. Proverbs 17, 15. Quote, he that justifieth the wicked and he that condemneth the just, even they both are abomination to the Lord. So that word justify does not mean pardon. It's, it means he that justifieth means shows to be just the wicked. He is an abomination to the Lord. We should not justify the wicked, especially in a court of law. Here, to justify the wicked means to vindicate the wicked as right. It means to acquit or release the guilty from guilt, which is a wrong and despicable thing to do, especially in a forum or in a forensic sense, in a court of law. It is an abomination to the Lord to justify the wicked in the sense of declaring or showing a wicked man to be just. God will not justify the wicked in the sense of Proverbs 17, as I just read. God will never declare a bad man to be righteous. In Deuteronomy 25, verse 1, we see another instance in which the word justify means to vindicate as right or to declare to be innocent in a judicial sense. Quote, if there be a controversy between men and they come into judge, they come unto judgment that the judges may judge them. Then shall they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. According to this precept, it is the duty of all judges, jurors, or civil officers, human or divine, to acquit or set free the righteous and to condemn or pronounce guilty, the wicked. The word justify is here used in a legal or judicial or forensic sense. It is the action of a court known as an acquittal. Civil judges and jurors are here in Deuteronomy 25.1 instructed to acquit, to judicially set free, or to declare to be innocent those who are found to be actually innocent or righteous in regard to a given charge. A juror acting in a court would be very wrong and injurious to the public if he were to justify or acquit a person who was, in fact, guilty of a specific indictment. It's very important that courts condemn the guilty and justify the righteous because if they don't do that, they're destroying their community. They're destroying the public at large. In Exodus 34, chapter 34, verse 7, we read that God will by no means clear the guilty. This means God will by no means hold, regard, or judge as innocent the guilty. 
To clear in this verse means to purge from the imputation of guilt. It means to justify or vindicate. When acting as judge, God will not vindicate as right or grant legal justification to any who have been guilty of sin unless the guilty ones have been pardoned for all their past sins prior to judgment day. And I had to stress that last part of it. That is very important because that's getting into the next aspect of justification, which is justification by faith. Here's another passage in Nahum, in the Old Testament, chapter 1, verse 3, we read, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the guilty. You see it again. We learn here that though the God of the Bible is slow to express anger, he is also just. And as supreme judge on judgment day, will not at all acquit the wicked, unless before judgment day, the wicked have been converted and justified in the gospel sense. Judges and jurors in any land are to serve in the place of God as his representatives, and they are to judge as God would judge. They are the servants of God. It says in Romans chapter 13, 1 to 6, the civil officers are the servants of God, civil judges. This means that all civil or church, and may I add, home judges and officers are morally obligated to condemn, to pronounce to be guilty, and to sentence to punishment those who have been found guilty of wickedness. And there are three very important governments that God has instituted. They, the first one God instituted and the most important government is home government. And then God also instituted a church government. That is very important. And I am looking here, and I'm looking for a certain verse. And God also instituted civil government. Oh, here here it is. I finally found the verse. I've been looking for a verse here. And um, it's in Isaiah 33, verse 22. It says, The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. That's interesting. You see the three departments of government here. The Lord is our judge, the judicial branch. The Lord is our lawgiver, the legislative branch, and the Lord is our king. That A king means a presiding officer, which would mean the executive branch. So God is the savior. So this implies that everyone who acts as judge, whether in a civil way, in a civil sense, uh, meaning in politics, or anyone that is a judge in the church or a judge in the home, they are to listen to the Lord. Because the Lord is the final judge. And if you want to save your home, then the judge, the lawgiver, and the king in the home, which would be the husband, he needs to listen to the Lord. And if he does what God wants, that will generally save the home. Same with the church. If if the pastor, the judge, and the lawgiver, and the king, or the leaders of the church, if they're listening to God, that will save the church. And of course, the same is true in politics. We need politicians. We need judges and lawgivers and kings, or could we say presidents, who will listen to God. And as we, as they all listen to God and we all listen to God, even the voting public, as we all listen to God, God will save us. But that's the key. God is our savior. But we got to listen to him and we got to comply with his terms. So I'm, I've been reading in uh, Nahum and Now, I want to make this clear about church government. A church punishment could involve anything from a verbal correction to a suspension from fellowship. They can't go any further than that. 
which is called excommunication. Churches have no right to use the sword as a form of punishment, as does the civil government. The civil government does have the right to use the sword, according to Romans chapter 13, verse 4. It can easily be seen in these passages that I just gave you, Proverbs 17, Deuteronomy, Exodus, and Nahum, that judges have no God-given right or prerogative to vindicate as right the wrongdoer to acquit the guilty, or to issue pardons. Courts of justice have no authority from God to justify the ungodly, to declare wrongdoers to be just, or to pardon the guilty. It is not the function of courts to pardon offenses. Instead, their duty, court's duty, is to hear cases, give verdicts, and issue sentences based on the established law of nature and of nature's God. It would be very wrong and detrimental to the welfare of the public for any judge, whether on earth or in heaven, to declare to be righteous a man who is actually or in fact guilty of wrongdoing. The divine judge will never administer legal or forensic justification to any who have violated or broken his law, but he will accept as righteous and allow into heaven all souls prior to leaving this world and prior to judgment day who are repentant and forgiven of all sins, and presently holy. So that's an important thing to realize that, yes, we can gain acceptance with God, but it's going to have to be the the gospel way, not the way of works or the way of law-keeping. Courts of law have not the power to forgive or pardon those who are guilty, as I already said. It is for this reason that the time to seek mercy and forgiveness from God is prior to our day in his court. If sinners do not promptly seek to be reconciled to God, while there is time and opportunity to do so, there will be a time, perhaps very soon or unexpectedly, when they will be delivered into the hands of God to be judged by Him in accordance to His perfect righteous laws. This principle of getting right with God prior to Judgment Day is seen in Matthew chapter 5, verse 25. Here we are urged to agree with our adversary quickly, lest we be delivered to the judge, then to the officer, then to prison, and then to pay the uttermost for our wrongs. You can see that right now God is not dealing with us as a judge. That's future. God is dealing with us as a loving, merciful Savior. He is our Lord. If you want to be saved, you need to receive him as Lord and as Savior. And if you do that, someday you will meet him as judge. But you need to meet him now as the good shepherd, as the savior of your sins. And if you meet him on that, in that respect now, things will go well for you on judgment day. So this is not judgment day. So I'm talking about justify now. To justify in the sense under discussion is to justify in a forensic sense, which means to find or declare one to be righteous or innocent in a court of law. And you can read about this in Matthew 12, verse 36 and 37. It says, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof. When? In the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. The word justified here in this verse is not the same thing as being justified by faith in Christ. It does not speak of gospel or evangelical justification. Instead, it speaks of legal justification issued by the great judge in the day of judgment. Quote, for by thy words thou shalt be justified, end quote, simply means 
for by thy words thou shalt be shown to be just or vindicated as right. All people will be justified or condemned in God's court depending upon the words they speak. So if we, including we who are presently justified by faith, if we speak words that do not meet God's approval and we purposely neglect to secure his forgiveness before we die, we will be condemned, judged as guilty or doomed for those sins on judgment day. Being condemned is the opposite of being justified. For this reason, Christians who sin in word need to confess their evil deeds, stop using them, commit themselves anew to Christ, and seek divine pardon before they meet their maker and their judge. To justify in a court of law is to acquit or to find not guilty by a judicial sentence or decision. There are two ways in which an acquittal or a justification by a court may occur. Here's one way. It's acquittal by force of testimony. That's one way to be acquitted. For instance, a person charged of a crime may, upon examination of the testimony in court, be found innocent of an alleged crime. The court acquits him by declaring the charge to be unfounded. This is legal or justif- or forensic justification because the court of justice has determined the alleged criminal to be innocent of the charge. The court came to this conclusion on the basis of testimony. See, that's acquittal by testimony. No sinner will ever be acquitted or justified in God's court by force of testimony because our judgment in the last day will be based upon God's testimony and in accordance to his truth and his knowledge. Quote, but we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. End quote. That's in Romans 2.2. 2. God's testimony is always accurate because the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Since all have sinned and stand justly condemned to suffer the penalty of God's broken law, no man can be justified by God by force of testimony or in this judicial sense. Sinners need to find another way to be justified. So here is another way to be justified. Acquittal by force. That's another way to be justified in a court of law, that is. A person may be brought before a court to answer to a certain accusation. It may appear in the course of the investigation that though the evidence establishes the fact or the deed on which he was charged, yet the fact or deed itself is found to be contrary to no law. This person is justified or cleared of guilt on what basis? By force of law. The deed was in truth committed, but it was not against any law. This is legal or judicial justification because it is a court proceeding in which the accused is found innocent. Well, no sinner will ever be cleared of guilt or justified in this way in God's government for the simple reason that all have broken God's law. No sinner in God's courtroom will be able to deny that his sinful actions were actual sins. I can just picture somebody saying, well, I had to divorce that man or that woman because of so-and-so. Well, that's not going to hold water because God's going to just open the Bible to Malachi and say God hates divorce. God hates putting away. And then he's going to open the Bible to Romans chapter 1 and say, see, look at this sin here, covenant breakers. That is a sin. And what is it worthy of? Worthy of death. So we're not going to have any leg to stand on. The Bible is clear. It says, Cursed is everyone 
that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. That's in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Again, sinners need to find another way to be justified because who can say that I've always continued in all things which are written in the book of the law? None of us can say that. We're, we all stand guilty on that score. On the ground of, on legal grounds, we're all going to be condemned. So acquittal by force of testimony or by force of law is a judicial or forensic justification. It's legal justification. And no sinner can ever hope to be justified in this sense before God. How then can we be justified before God? I've already alluded to it, but this leads to our third meaning of the word to justify. And this is found in the Bible. To justify can also mean to pardon and clear from guilt, to accept as righteous on account of the merits of the Savior, or by the application of Christ's atonement to the offender. Now that, that is a quote from Noah Webster's dictionary, and I just wrote it down because I think it is excellent. That's what justify, to justify can mean. That's the third sense in which I'm using it. Now this is not legal justification. This is gospel justification. This is justification by faith. This is justification by grace. Now I'm looking at Romans chapter 4, and um, I'm reading verse 5, and it says, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now wait a minute. Him that justifies the ungodly? We already proved very clearly in the other verses that is wrong. We must not ever justify the ungodly, but God will. So what does that word justify mean? It simply means pardon. It means to be accepted by God on the basis of pardon. It does not mean being declared righteous. It means to be forgiven. So uh, let me read that verse again and make a few comments. But to him that worketh not, in other words, to him that worketh not as the way of earning a justified state, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Or you could say his, his faith is counted for justification. And when it says him that justifieth the ungodly, obviously they were ungodly at first. But when they became justified, they became justified because they repented of their ungodliness. They changed their way. They were not ungodly after being justified by faith. So that's important to know that. In this sense, to justify means to forgive sin or to set aside the execution of a deserved punishment. To forgive means to overlook an offense and treat the offender as not guilty. That's what it means to forgive. You treat them as though they're not guilty, even though they have done the deed, the bad deed. They are guilty. They have incurred guilt. But because they repent and because they make restitution or do whatever, they get right with you, then you forgive them. Well, God does the same thing. This is the essence of gospel or evangelical justification. This is not legal justification. This is not justification by the deeds of the law, as it says in Romans 3.20. 
This is not a being declared righteous. God doesn't declare us righteous. No, he declares us guilty. However, even though we have been guilty, he has forgiven us and pardoned us and justified us in a sense. And he can do it because of what Jesus did on the cross in atoning for our sins. Instead, this justification that I'm talking about, this justification by uh, faith, that is gospel justification. It is justification by grace. You may read about that in Romans chapter 3, verse 24. This is the only way by which those who have actually sinned can be justified before God. That Can Jews who believe in the Judaism and deny Christ as the one and only Savior, can they be saved? The answer is no. How about Muslims and the people who follow Islam? If they reject Christ as their Savior, and if they reject him as being the true Son of God, then they cannot be forgiven. There's no way. There's only one way to be justified before God, and that is by faith in Christ through his grace. It is a gift that he gives us. So technically speaking, we could say this. There are two ways to stand before God as righteous. One way is to never once commit a sin from the time you become morally accountable to the day you meet your maker. That's one way. And if you can be saved that way, that is that is super. Because Jesus, that's how he had uh, acceptance before the Father. Jesus never once sinned. And that is actually the best way, in a sense. It's better not to sin at all than to have to, than to sin and then have to get a pardon. And that's true in real life, right? You're better off staying on the right side of the law. Life is easier that way when you're on the right side of the law of civil law, of the law of the land. Life gets easier. And it's the same way with God. Stay obedient to God and you won't have to say, Lord, I'm sorry for this. Oh, Lord, please forgive me. You won't have to say that if you obey the law. So that's one way you can stand righteous before God is never sin. And this is called legal righteousness or justific or you could call it legal justification. The other way is to be justified by faith in Christ. This is the gospel way of justification or you could call this gospel righteousness. This could be called submitting to the righteousness of God. In other words, the justification of God, the way to be righteous God's way after you fail. Since all have sinned, there is only one way to be saved and accepted by God, and it is the gospel way. It is the way of believing in Christ and repenting of sin. Hence, it is useless and foolish for one who has sinned to attempt to secure favor with God on the basis of law-keeping. Divine favor can only be obtained on another basis, the basis of pardoning grace. Gospel justification is simply justification on the principle of pardon. Seeing that Christ justifieth the ungodly, in Romans 4, 5, we read about that, it is only in this gospel sense and not in a legal or judicial sense that sinners can be justified. God cannot and will not grant legal justification to an ungodly man, as I've already read in Exodus and Deuteronomy and 1 Kings 8, 32 is another place. I didn't read that one, but that's another one. And Proverbs 17 and Nahum chapter 1. So God cannot grant legal justification to those who have sinned, but he can and will forgive and accept as righteous or treat as innocent a previously ungodly man who turns from his sins 
and believes the gospel. That's the key. You must turn from your sins, though. You can't go on sinning and expect that Jesus is going to save you, because he won't. And I'm not going to go into this, but it is a fiction to believe that Jesus Christ will impute or transfer or put to your account his righteousness. He will not transfer his righteousness unto you when you first believe in Christ. That is a corruption of the gospel. It's a perversion of the gospel. I challenge anybody listening to try to find one verse that says, that teaches that Christ imputes his righteousness to us when we first believe. No, he does not do that. What he does do in Romans 4 is, and you read about it, he imputes righteousness. Well, what is that? That simply means he forgives. He accepts you as righteous. He treats you as though you you are right, even though you have sinned in your past. The only sense in which an ungodly man can be justified before God is in the sense of having his past ungodliness remitted, canceled, and forgiven. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 13. And let me get there. Listen to this. Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, all that believe are justified. There's that word justified. Are justified from all things, from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. See, if you've sinned, doing all the good deeds after you have sinned will not atone for your sins. You won't be justified on that basis. Or it says justified by the law of Moses. Or if you have sinned and you go perform some ritual, some sacrament, and think that that sacrament is going to wipe away your sin, do some penance or whatever, that's not going to do it either. There's only one way to be justified after we have sinned, and that is to repent of it, to be sorry enough to change, and to believe and rely upon the grace of Christ who atoned for our sins on the cross. That's the only way we will obtain forgiveness. So that's a good verse there that shows that the word justified means forgiveness of sins. And that would be gospel justification. This kind of justification can only occur, as I said, on the conditions of an atonement in the sinner's penitent faith, in the one who provided that atonement. There needs to be a penitent faith. That means a repentant, a remorseful, contrite faith. All who have been ungodly or have disobeyed God's law in their past cannot ever hope to be acquitted by force of testimony or by force of law in God's government. God will not pronounce an ungodly man to be righteous in a legal or forensic sense. His holiness and goodness will not allow it. He made this clear when he said, I will not justify the wicked and will by no means clear the guilty. No righteous court in any land or in any world would ever pronounce a guilty man to be innocent unless he receives a pardon for his past crimes before judgment day. It is the prerogative and obligation of courts to try cases and make decisions based upon the letter of the law as well as the spirit of the law. But it is not the court's prerogative, function, or obligation to make laws. They can't make law. Or to impute innocence to the guilty. They can't do that. Or to grant pardons. Courts have no right to do this kind of stuff. 
They have to just try the case, and if they're guilty, apply the law to it and mete out the punishment, deliver the punishment, the sentence. Now, the moral law of God is very good and beneficial. Moral laws are rules of action for moral agents designed to promote the pleasure and well-being of all of all mankind as well, and especially for the pleasure of God. It forbids certain actions, the law that is, and it requires others, and it's all for our good and for the good of others. It also shows us our wrongs. That's what the law does. By the knowledge of the law, we will be aware of sin. It says that. So the law does a lot of good. It keeps us from trouble. It blesses when we keep it. It blesses us. If we have violated, the law shows us our wrongs. And of course, it points us to our need of a Savior. That's the blessing of the law of God. The Bible says the law of God is good and holy and just. So it's a blessing to hear the law. And by the way, those preachers and those pastors that speak moral law and get specific on teaching the law to their people, they are doing a great, great service to the people in that church because they're driving them or pointing them to their need of Christ. And that's the purpose of the church, is to point everybody to Christ to follow him. But there are some things the law cannot do. It cannot provide a remedy for past sins. Only Christ can. The moral law condemns those who have violated it. But a new and fresh commitment to keep the moral law, though it will do much good to self and to others, it cannot blot out past infractions or provide forgiveness. Therefore, it is ridiculous to think that God can or will declare one who has broken the law to be righteous in a legal sense. He, he won't. The sinner's only hope of gaining acceptance with God is through gospel righteousness or justification by faith. The judgment seat of Christ, which is the highest and most just court in the universe, will exact strict justice for our actions in accordance to moral law. And so, there is not the proper place, and then is not the proper time to look to God for mercy or for forgiveness. Mercy must be sought of God prior to our appearance in his court. The Bible says, Behold, now is the day of salvation. Jesus is a waiting Savior. He is waiting to be your Lord and your Savior. And now is the time to receive that salvation from this Savior of ours. If we don't get salvation now, we're going to have to receive judgment after. Because the Bible says after death comes judgment. Think of it. Judgment without mercy is a must because all benevolent and just courts must judge in accordance to law, in accordance to strict justice. Courts have no right to pardon lawbreakers or to clear the guilty. Therefore, if lawbreakers want mercy, they must seek it before they face the Almighty Judge. And once pardoned, there must afterward, or there must thereafter, abide in Christ and walk in full obedience to God's laws in order to maintain our right standing with God and be received into glory. So in summary, I just want to say this. Gospel justification is justification on the principle of pardon. God accepts us as righteous, even though we've been very bad in our past. Now here, I want to leave you with a good verse that teaches. Uh, and before I give you that verse, I want to give you a quote from Chuck Swindoll. He said something 
on April 7, 2021. And I wrote it down, and it was a bad statement. And I don't think he realizes what he said, but I, I think he does realize what he said. And this is what he believes, and this is wrong. This is not gospel justification. Let me give you his justification, his uh, uh, de definition of justification. He defines it as the sovereign act of God, whereby he declares a person righteous while in a state of sin. Wow. End quote. That's his quote. And that is not gospel justification. God does not declare a person righteous while he is living in sin. If you want to be accepted by God and justified, it's going to have to be the the gospel way. And the gospel way, Jesus said, I already read it in Mark 1, he says, repent ye and believe the gospel. And other places he says, believe in me and you shall have eternal life. Jesus said that also. But here is a an interesting passage and it's in, I want to close with this passage. It's in Luke chapter 18 and it's a parable and I'm reading at verse 9. It says, and he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican, not a Republican, although it would fit, <laughs> but it's a publican. That'd be a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now, you have Two sinners here who are approaching God. The Pharisee was a sinner because it says that he thought he was righteous and he claimed he was righteous. But it says there in verse 9, he despised others. And the implication is that he was exalting himself in verse 14. So this man had problems, this, this Pharisee. And of course, Jesus spoke a lot about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. So he was a sinner, but the other man was a sinner too. And that's the publican. And uh, But look what it says. This publican said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. We have to assume he was being honest here. So he saw, the publican saw himself as a sinner, but he didn't remain a sinner. That's my point. He repented. He wanted mercy. Why? Because he had blown it. He was wicked and he was deserving of hell and he was a sinner. And yes, you must realize you're a sinner before you will ever apply yourself to Christ for salvation. However, he didn't remain a sinner. That's my point. He says, and it says in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. That word justified has to mean justified in a gospel sense. Because why? He was a sinner. He was, could God declare that man righteous? No way. That man was a sinner. So he was guilty. But yet he went down to his house justified. In what sense was he justified? Only in the gospel sense, which would mean he was pardoned. He was forgiven. And then it says he went down to his house justified rather than the other. The other did not receive pardon and forgiveness. Why? Well, for everyone that exalteth himself, that's why he didn't receive pardon, the Pharisee, because he was filled with self-exaltation and, and uh, pride. And he didn't see his need. And he lacked humility. It says, and then it says, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. That word humbleth himself means repent. He repented. 
So you could read, and he that repents shall be exalted. To humble yourself means to be distressed and to sense, have distress or put upon yourself distress or grief for having sinned. So you can see that Jesus taught gospel justification right there. And uh, so if you want to be saved and forgiven, there's got to be that repentance. There's got to be a change of heart. And there's got to be a humbling of oneself. And many people will never go to heaven because they don't humble themselves before God or before those that they have offended. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you. I hope you take these things to heart.